right. So Anna Clark is a Nashville-based musician and philanthropist. At her day job, she works as a vinyl mastering engineer at Welcome to 1979 Industries, where she has been able to work on over 200 projects for bands such as Beck, Iggy Azalea, Lisa Loeb, and even a live vinyl Old Crow Medicine Show album. In 2011, Anna founded a 501c3 organization, Guitars for Gifts, which has given over a thousand youths access to their first musical instrument, thanks to national partnerships with El Sistema USA, Creative Vets, Kretz Strings, Alfred Music Publishers, and the Diodario Foundation. Guitars for Gifts has been featured in stories by SixDegrees.org, the Women's International Music Network, Real People by Rudy Kalis on WSMV, Nashville's NBC affiliate, and Nashville by Nicole on Lightning 100. Anna was invited to perform an original song live on Lightning 100, Nashville's premier independent radio station. She is a lifelong singer-songwriter and is currently recording her first album of original electronic rock music. This album is expected to be out late in 2021. Also in 2016, Anna got a certificate in music business from Berklee College of Music and is currently continuing her education in music business with plans to graduate from Belmont University in 2022. When not working on one of her passion projects, Anna loves to spend time with their dogs or attend concerts with their family and friends. And to connect with Anna, visit her website at www.annaclarkmusic.com. That's A-N-N-A-C-L-A-R-K. M-U-S-I-C dot com or on Instagram at yeah. at Anna Clark Music. And uh, Anna, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we wanted to get, we, we always look for more perspectives on the show. And uh, you actually, I think, offer a very unique perspective. Uh, number one, because um I think you might be the first female that I've interviewed for the show, which may be not super important, but like, I didn't want it to be all guys, um, yeah. frankly. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's nice to talk to a woman in the music industry. And number two, you actually, you're, you're fairly young, but like you're involved in the vinyl mastering industry, which is kind of a weird combination to me, like kind of counterintuitive, I guess. Yeah, but, it's a weird niche industry yeah. that not many people know about. So <laughs> I know that there is a vinyl resurgence, or at least I hear about it. I personally am not a, a big participant in that because I don't have a turntable or, or anything like that. But I, I know that vinyl has been coming back to some degree. And I bet that that's probably part of what drives your your day job career. Uh, but yeah. like, uh, how did you first get into uh, making vinyl records? Because th- there is quite a few significant differences, I'd say. Uh, between doing a CD versus a, a vinyl record. And maybe yeah. you want to just get into like one or two of those bigger, bigger ones. Yeah. So um, I actually, I got into just audio engineering in general, really young, um, mm-hmm. started songwriting and playing music and basically just wanted to learn as much as I could about the whole process. Mm-hmm. And probably around the time that I was, Well, I was actually, I was running sound at a live music venue and kind of learning audio that way. And they had a turntable at the venue and a huge vinyl collection. And so I started to get really into it um, by the turntable when I was like 15 or 16 Mm -hmm. and started a vinyl collection and just did a ton of research on how albums are made and 
and the whole process behind it. Um, it's just, it's very fascinating to me and ended up being able to start working at Welcome to 1979, um, where I'm actually able to cut lacquers mm-hmm. and do vinyl mastering. Um, so it was just, it was something that I, I guess because there's so few people who uh, work in that industry, yeah. I wasn't exactly sure if I'd even be able to get in the door, like right. if there'd be any opportunities to do that. So I feel like I was just really lucky that there was. I guess it was Absolutely. just kind of like the right time. So yeah, you kind of got lucky, it sounds like, yeah. but uh, you already had an audio background then. So you, you were what, digitally recording and writing your own music before? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was doing that and just uh, and running live sound and just trying to learn as much as I could. Yeah. So like, I know one thing that I never run into burning CDs or making digital releases is things like how loud is this portion of the song? Which it's my mm-hmm. understanding that if you're making a final record, the louder that portion of the song is, the wider the actual groove on the record is. Meaning that yeah. like, if you have a bunch of loud songs, you can literally fit less minutes of music on one side mm-hmm. of a record. Yeah. Uh, was that just a, oh, this isn't going to work? Like, did you just find it out through trial and error? Or did you, was that something you studied uh, beforehand? Yeah. So I'd studied audio in general beforehand, but the whole like mastering for vinyl is something that they don't really necessarily teach you. So that was something that I learned through um, just apprenticing and mm-hmm. training for my job. Um, and that really was one of the first things that I learned um, when I was training was that essentially the louder the music is, the wider the groove is. And so Mm -hmm. you can physically fit less music per side. So what I'll do, um, since most of the stuff that I cut is actually new bands and new albums that want to get pressed to vinyl for the first time, rather than Mm -hmm. like reissues or re-releases, is going through and basically looking at how long each side is and adjusting the overall volume level so that they'll be able to fit that music on the side gotcha. and also trying to um, work with the artist. Cause you never want to have a side that sounds so quiet that people can't really hear right. it. You made so, it really quiet to fit yeah. all the stuff on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there is a limit to how, like I just have a cutoff where I'm like, Hey, if it's going to be over a 22 minute side, you probably want to cut out a song. Hmm. It's just trying to go over that. It's not, it's probably going to be too quiet and you're going to have complaints. So. I I read about you using a a microscope as part of one of your checks when making a lacquer, but I guess my only experience with a microscope is, is the one that I had when I was very, very young, which had like a a little backlight underneath, like a little thing Mm -hmm. with like a mirror. Right. But obviously vinyl is not transparent. So how do you use a microscope to see the the depth of your groove on a opaque right. material? Yeah, so sense? that yeah, so it's a it, it um basically the reason that we use a microscope is because the lacquers are so soft that you can't play them back. Mm. So after I cut a lacquer, that lacquer is going to get sent off to the plating department, and then they're going to press it and 
you know, you're, you may get test pressings. The artist may decide to forgo test pressings. But that lacquer is going to essentially get duplicated hundreds of times. And so you have all these copies of albums out. And since you can't listen to it at the lacquer cutting stage, you want to have a way to essentially make sure that there aren't any huge errors. Gotcha. Um, so it's basically just a, a microscope that we use that can magnify the grooves and basically just double check that none of the grooves are overlapping at all. Right. So sometimes they'll kind of touch and that's okay, but you never want one groove to cut over another because then you'll get then your skips. needle just, yeah, skip yeah. right over. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a way to check for that. Um, it's a way to make sure that the depth of the grooves is okay. And that's um, basically the, the microscope has like a little ruler on it. Okay. So you can see how wide that groove is. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, how much do you know about like various audio formats through the years? Like, do you know how, how vinyl compares to cassettes compares to CDs in terms of like, were certain frequencies overemphasized in certain uh, audio mediums or is that nothing that you've gotten into? Yeah. So I've, I've gotten into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll say it's a little different or one of the things I've learned is that it's a little bit different with vinyl because each lathe that's used mm -hmm. um can emphasize different frequencies so there even with each individual piece of equipment there can be some differences right um so there are some things that are that are fairly standard um just across different formats right, right. um but even i've I feel like as you get farther back, um, sometimes the specific piece of gear will impact something differently. Right. For sure. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so you said earlier you were talking to me on your laptop, but is that your normal like recording uh, gear? Because part, part mm -hmm. of this podcast is about like just kind of talking to nerds about audio yeah. nerdery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, no. So uh, right now I've, I'm just doing the live stream. Um, my laptop has a little bit better camera okay, so, gotcha. than the computer yeah. that I record with. So that was the only reason that I've, I've got that set up right now. <laughs> okay. Do you, uh, I think I read that you use a studio live mixer from Personas. Is that right? So that, yeah, that's mostly for, um, like live sound and for producing. Yeah. Like, yeah. uh, like using as a control surface basically yeah. for your D DAW. Yep. How, how happy have you been with the DAW interactions, uh, with the studio live mixer? Like, is it something where you can literally walk up and, and start producing a song if you got an idea in, in like five minutes and have a have a template basically set up on your mixer itself? Yeah, so I've uh, I've got a template set up in my DAW that I mm -hmm. use. Um, but yeah. the Studio Live mixer has been great. I it's really easy because I've basically got all my mics plugged up and ready to go. And I love synths. So I've got my synths plugged up and um, I can basically just walk up and press a couple buttons, you know, turn on the power and mm -hmm. start producing something. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's really easy. That's cool. How um, 
how flexible is it like uh, when you, I think you also mentioned at some point that you use it occasionally for live, uh, mm-hmm. live shows as well. Like how, how easy is it to switch between those two modes of operation for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's, uh, so the mixer is really easy to use, um, for both. I mean, I use, I'll save like a scene, um, especially if it's a band that I work with fairly regularly where I, I know what they're going to sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a bunch of those saved so I can just pull something up and I at least have a starting point. Um, and then it's easy to just go home and pull up my production scene and have everything right back where I wanted it. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. So I, I like to keep things pretty quick. (laughs) Me too. Yeah, no, I'm all about having everything kind of preset and Mm -hmm. especially if you work with the same band, right? Like you, you know, that lead singer probably needs an EQ bump it here and an EQ cut here if she's using the same mic mic or whatever so mm-hmm. it could be very helpful for sure yeah how, how powerful is the routing capability the audio routing in the in the mixer itself like could i do an easy loop back i'm not sure if you're a windows or a mac user but yeah so i'm a mac <laughs> oh yeah so yeah you're probably not even familiar with the loopback problem uh that, that a lot of windows users have where they cannot use audio hijack to like loop back the software output of one piece of software back into their mixer yeah, so be audible I've, to their guests. I've heard about it, but I, I haven't experienced it myself. Right. So yeah. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. Um uh how how do you like your Scepter S six monitors, which I had my eye on for a time? Yeah, um, I I love them. Um to me they sound very honest, which mm-hmm. is one of the things I like, like if some, if I'm working on something that's not going to sound good, I want to know it's not going to sound good. You <laughs> yeah, know, I, yeah. I don't want to feel like it's going to end up like I'm going to listen to it on my monitors and it's going to sound really pretty. And then, you know, I take it somewhere else and it's not going to sound good. Um, yeah. So they were really, they're really easy to like learn how they sound, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it. So I, I love using them. Do you ever find yourself using like Mix Assist or Room Simulation hardware uh, software? If you know what I mean, like. Um, yeah, I honestly I haven't um, in the past like a lot. I've used it before, but I haven't really used it a ton. You know, it's funny. The industry is very split on that software. Some some people swear by it, and other people say it's the worst crap in the world and the biggest waste of money in the world. It's very hit or miss on that. It's very funny. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess how many how many people have you needed to record with that series uh, uh, with the Studio Live Mixer? That's one question I've had uh, for large session records, multi track recording at once. Has have yeah. you really pushed the limits there, or is it? I haven't. Um, I've mostly been recording like one instrument at a time. Sure. Um, I'd say probably as far as like working with bigger groups of people, it's been more live. Mm-hmm. Um, like running sound for a live show or something. Right. Um, but yeah, as far as recording, I'm mostly been doing like one instrument at a time. Mm-hmm. 
have you ever had to route things out for like um, individual monitor mixes, like in-ear mixes or anything like that? I So I've done it um, for like two different people, but mm-hmm. um, or like for me and someone else that's recording, but I haven't yeah. done like where, you know, I'm doing a ton of different yeah. Yeah. people. Cool. So <laughs> That's cool. Uh, I, oh, I feel like I have to ask you this, um, as a vinyl mastering engineer, have you ever used the ozone, uh, isotope vinyl plugin and what are your thoughts on how closely it emulates this, like making a digital recording sound like it, it's coming through on vinyl? Yeah. So funny you actually mentioned that cause I, so I use ozone all the time. Um, uh-huh. and I, I hadn't really used their specific plugin that like makes it sound like a vinyl record mm-hmm. um, until recently I was working on a song with a friend and he thought it'd be funny to put it on the song I was working on since I uh-huh. worked on vinyl and he was curious if it sounded similar and I honestly didn't get to listen to it that closely so I don't know that I have a specific opinion right on it yet Um but I, when I saw it, I, I'm definitely interested to listen to it closer, and I'd be interested to even like A B it, you know. Right. Like, that's actually like, what what I was yeah. interested if you had done. Like uh, I haven't done that yet, but it's something that I wanted to do. Like take some audio and cut it yeah. onto a lacquer and record it back, and also use the plugin and see how similar they sound. <laughs> Just to uh, to be clear, it occurs to me, I, I never actually asked this question I should have earlier. When you say cutting a lacquer, you're talking mm-hmm. about cutting a metal piece, right? That vinyl will then be pressed onto to make the actual record? Or is it the so, other way? It kind of. Um, <laughs> so what I do is it's actually, it's an aluminum disc with a lacquer coating. And so the lacquer coating is soft. And gotcha. the lathe has a needle, and that needle basically traces the groove into it. And then that lacquer is taken and gone. It, they take it to an electroplating process. Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially electroplated to make a negative. A at that negative. Point. Yeah. Yeah. So a negative. That makes sense. And then they basically take that negative and make another positive. Right. which is called the mother. And then multiple stampers, which are also negatives are made from each mother. Um, and then essentially how many mothers and stampers are made based on how many records they need. Gotcha. In the end, okay. um, because each stamper oh, can only press so many records before it gets worn out. So, oh, wow. yeah. So the stamper is taken and it's put in a press and basically, it looks like a hockey puck almost, but it's basically a little bit of plastic, PVC. Uh-huh. And when they press, yeah. it heats it up, and the stamper presses down, and it heats and cools really quick, and that's how the records are made. Oh, that's cool. So you're yeah. like making a metal version of the record with a lacquer coating on top, and then they make a mold from that and then make a, a another positive from that. And mm-hmm. then they stamp stuff into that, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, and then they have to they have to make several of those in order to, to produce 10,000 records or something like that, right? Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, and wow. it's okay. Uh, it's even kind of weirder because every so often lacquers have to get recut, you know, if they're going to press more albums. So some of those albums that have been around since the 70s. Zeppelin 1. Yeah. 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 Zeppelin 1 they've they, made a few lacquers for, probably. Huh? Yeah. And so <laughs> they want to keep pressing that the lacquers have to get recut every so often. So you, you can sometimes hear... Typically, if I'm going to recut something, I like to hear an original copy or, you know, as close to an original copy right. to make it try to sound similar. Right. Um, but obviously, every engineer does things a little bit differently. And, you know, some of the tools that I have now, like Ozone, they didn't right. have back then. So, For sure. Is there also a question, like, I imagine for some of those really old recordings, right? Like Zeppelin one, the originals would be on master like magnetic tape, which degrades probably a different rate than like a vinyl record. That's never been played except for once would. So which would be your master in that case that you'd want to try and match? Yeah. So does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And it kind of, it kind of depends. So, Hmm. I mean, I I know there are some albums that have um, they've cut the lacquers from the original master tapes, and it it's kind of just one of those things where typically somewhere down the line the master tapes have been transferred to right. like a DAW, so there's a digital mm-hmm. record of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of for some things we'll end up using that essentially that capture of the tapes. Um, I've heard of, I personally haven't worked on anything where they've taken the original master tapes and cut it directly to vinyl. But I know some people that I work with have done that. Mm. Um, So that's like a whole different process with trying to essentially transfer the tapes um, they do degrade and I've actually seen we're on a tape machine. It'll be like, like the tape will be playing back and you can see the tape mm-hmm. shredding as oh. it's playing. And you just kind of have to hope that that, that recording that you got of the playback is <laughs> good it's good yeah because it's the last chance (laughs) that's the last one (laughs) it's either gonna be good or you don't have it yeah Yeah. for sure how funny um uh are you working on any of your own musical stuff this uh these days i I thought i read something about that but uh yeah i wasn't sure if you'd published anything yet yeah so i uh am about to send four songs off to get mastered so yeah i um, I've been working on those just last year, uh, with quarantine and all that. I felt like there was less stuff to do. Yeah. Um, so decided to record an EP and it's my first thing that I've ever worked on that I'm going to release. That's mine. Um, mm. so yeah, I'm really excited about that. I don't know exactly when it's going to be released yet. 
how much of the work did you do on your own? Like, I assume you played and uh, the instruments and sang or whatever, but uh, did you also track and mix and do all that stuff yourself? Yeah. So I, um, for this, I co-wrote all the songs um, and co-produced them, played some of the instruments, sang on it, um, did some of the tracking, uh, ended up having someone else mix it and master mm. it and, that's more because personally for me, I like to have another set of ears on something that's a going to ask that. Yeah. That's a new perspective because I know there, especially when I'm singing, I know there are certain things that I'll do that almost try to hide my voice or hide certain aspects mm. of my voice. Whereas even uh, the person I'm co-producing with is like, that's great. You need to keep that. Like, don't, don't touch that take. That's the one we want. And usually when I mm-hmm. go back a couple months later, I realize they're right. So, but yeah. it's just in the moment, I'm so nervous about how I sound that it's clouding my mm. judgment. So I, I personally feel like whenever it's something that I'm writing uh, and performing on, I, I personally like to have someone else listen to it and work on it um, yeah. that I trust so that I know that I'm not just doing something because there's some like a little something that I'm insecure about. I just, yeah, I feel like it ends sure. up making it better. Yeah. I mean, I, I would echo that. I would also say like we get married to our own material pretty, pretty easily to where, you know, like authors talk about killing their babies about, you know, removing sections of their book that they, they really loved and wanted to keep. But, like there's like no this like it's a better book without it and oftentimes yeah it does take a, another set of ears to uh to be like you know that bridge it's not really great yeah i think the yeah. song's better without it yeah yeah for sure oh yeah well that's awesome um i i was curious to know if you had done any kind of your own mastering though like whenever i pay someone else to do a mix or anything i i know i do my own mix and then mm-hmm. i pay someone else to do a mix and i compare and contrast and i'm always almost always I'm rather more happy with the other person's mix than I am with mine. Cause I've been like, yeah, I did the thing that I just described. I was, I was married to that part. Yeah. No, I've, I've done a little bit of the same thing, but I always feel like typically there's something that someone else brings to the table that I wouldn't have even thought about doing because I've, especially when I've been working on the song every single day for, possibly months, you know, or at least listening to it every single day. You just, you, it's almost like you don't get enough of a break from it to really hear what needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, before I forget, what mic are you, uh, using right now to talk to me right now? I'm using a flea. Um, it's flea. I don't don't know that one. F L E E A. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, yeah, it's what I use to track all my vocals. Okay. You got Um, a model number or anything like that? Yeah. It's, uh, sorry, I'm totally blanking. (laughs) No worries. Yeah, it's a, a, 47. 47. So it's, cool. um, 
modeled after to be a large diaphragm condenser. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Cool. What's it modeled after? You said. Oh, it's not. Mo uh, I can't speak. <laughs> modeled after the Neumann. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh God, I don't know how to spell Neumann. That's fine. I'm gonna <laughs> butcher it. Neumann. Uh, yep, that's how you spell it for sure. It's modeled after that. Uh, okay. Luckily, no one else can see my screen, so <laughs> they don't see how badly I spelled that. <laughs> cool. Uh, I think, actually, that will be a good transition into what I call my audio lightning round. So let's... Okay. There it is. Uh, not sure why it came twice. That's weird. <laughs> okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> I'm not sure... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hopefully we can edit that fairly easily. I'm going to pull up my actual lightning round test. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the lightning round is, um, I'll give my little preamble. So the folks at that music store that we all go to are pretty sure that those gold plated unbalanced monster cables are worth the 600% markup that they put on them. Uh, but I'm not sure that I agree. And I'd like to get your opinion on what, whether you agree. Um, the idea is that I'm going to give you a series of questions. I'll try to, Remember to give you the, the list of finite answers, and I'd like you to pick from one of those finite answers and do your best not to explain. Afterwards, okay. at the very end of the lightning round, we will go back and give you a, a chance to hedge or, or clarify anything that you want to clarify. Does that all make sense? Yep. All right. Cool. I'll probably change my answer five times, but let's go. Yes. <laughs> It's the very point of the lightning round yeah. is we get halfway through and everyone's like, oh, wait, but uh, <laughs> yeah. so here we go. So is it worth the money to buy a fancy unbalanced quarter inch patch cable, like a, a guitar cable, for instance? And by fancy, I mean gold plated, that sort of thing. Um, and the answers are worth it or a waste of money. This is so hard without not explaining it. I know. I'm <laughs> going to give you a chance afterwards, though. So okay. just uh, pick a rule and uh, go with that to be right. consistent if you want. I'll just say waste of money. Cool. What about a balanced quarter inch patch cable, something like a speaker cable or a, a, a keyboard connection cable, something like that for audio out? Worth it. Gold plated and sh triple shielded, all that nonsense. Is it worth it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, a, a balanced XLR patch cable, like a mic cable. Should it be fancy? Is it worth it? I'm going to go with yes. Okay. Uh, what about, is it worth it to buy an external preamp uh, for uh, for your audio interface? I'm just going to go with yes again. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, my change, my answer's changed here. It's worth it regardless. Worth it based on your mic and or audio interface or waste of money regardless. Do the second one. Okay, cool. Uh, is it worth the money to buy a third-party plug-in hardware uh, plug-in or hardware processor? Uh, things like VSTs or rack-mounted hardware uh, versus just your DAW stock plugins. Worth yes. it or waste of money? Worth, worth it. it. Okay. Yeah. So worth the money to buy dedica uh, dedicated streaming hardware. You may not be a live streamer, so you may not have an answer on this. But your answers are worth it if your computer can't handle streams. Worth it regardless or waste of money. I honestly don't really stream a lot. So, okay. I mean, I guess I uh, just say waste of money since I don't do it. Gotcha. But that makes sense. 
Um, is it worth the money to buy a green screen for live screens? I'm going to say no, waste of money yeah. for you. Uh, uh, your preferred DW software is, uh, just name it and I'll select it from the list. See, this is difficult because it, are you talking about Ooh. mixing, producing, or mastering? Uh, let's say tracking slash mix. Well, if you had to pick one for all of them, uh, would it be Studio One or would it be another? Probably Pro Tools. Pro Tools, okay. Is that your uh, preferred for all the other specific applications like mixing versus tracking versus mastering? No. See, okay. I, I mean, mastering WaveLab. Wave lab, okay. Interesting. Um, but it uh, we will get depends. <laughs> so not Studio One though, just to be clear. Yeah, no, I do use it. Um, okay, but I'd say that's more tracking. Okay, cool. Um, I'll skip over the next question, which is also about uh, streaming. Uh, do you do any like video conferencing, whether for school or professionally? And if I so, do. do you have a preferred solution, uh, like a software for that? I mean, usually I just use Zoom. Zoom, yeah, yeah. it's pretty standard. Um, and you're not a streamer, so I won't ask you about your preferred restreaming service. All right, so now we get into um, a couple of like ranked choice questions. Basically, they rank from strongly disagree to strongly agree, with disagree, agree, and neutral being your other options. Um, so my DAW stock plugins are a cost-effective way to get audio broadcast ready and repair problems. Would you strongly disagree, strongly agree, or where? So you're saying the stock plugins with... Yeah. All right. Like uh, whatever your DAWs is. I disagree. I usually like to buy other okay. things. Isotope RX is a suite of cost-effective tools to get audio broadcast ready and repair problems. Yes. Agree. Yes, uh, agree. Uh, Isotope Ozone is a suite of cost-effective tools to get audio broadcast ready and repair problems. Agree. Agree. Cool. Is one of those better, um, Ozone versus RX, in, in terms of your opinion? I use them for different things. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fab filter plugins. You ever use that suite? Yes. Love them. Uh, strongly agree or agree? strongly oh. agree. Me too. Uh, Waves plugins are a cost-effective way. Uh, yeah, I agree. Agree? Okay, yeah. sure. All right. Um, and if you had a go-to plugin that you frequently use that maybe hasn't come on yet, yet would you uh, like to name that? Not that I can think of. I mean, most okay. of the things that I use are like Isotope. Isotope, yeah. Yeah. Me too. Just I use that D-verb plug-in all the time because I got an untreated room. I don't know about you. Yeah, I've used that. Love it. <laughs> uh, I know you have, let's see, you got your Squarespace site. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other like monthly services that you pay to, to host your, your music or host anything else for your your services or your band or anything like that? Not right now. Uh, I'm, I'm looking into different distribution. Sure. Solutions for my music, but I haven't picked one out yet. Oh yeah, let me. Since we're on that topic, I just I have a file right here on my computer that is um, a list of very common distribution services. If you would like it, I can yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Read music distribution services. Music. 
Okay, uh, let me, I'll finish up this and then I will read that off to you. Uh, so you said you might want to hedge some of those. Uh, so are, are there any clarifications you wanted to make about any of the questions I made earlier? Um, honestly, I, I think it's really difficult to know if something's worth it or not because I've always been That's one of those people where I want the source to be good mm. and then everything else after that like can only be as good as the source audio. So okay. I'd rather put more money into getting like a great microphone. Um, yeah, but it, I, I totally agree with that. Like put your money in your microphone slash speakers, uh, mm -hmm. monitors, uh, for sure. Yeah. And, and so it, it, I think in the past, it's always just ultimately depended on how much money I had to spend because I don't know that upgrading anything would be a waste, but I also, I know that, you know, you always want something else. Like there's always something, there's always something else you can upgrade or add to your studio. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a never ending cycle. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with that. Especially with plugins and, and things like that. Oh yeah. Um, out there. Um, and I already am going to say music is what you primarily produce, not as opposed to like a podcast or a live stream or spoken word or anything like that. So uh, <laughs> thank you for that. It'll go into my semi-scientific data set <laughs> that I've been collecting. Uh, if you're curious, uh, Isotope is, is strongly winning uh, in terms <laughs> of like plug-in suites. Um, and while, while you and I, I think, are the only folks that I've uh, responded with uh, with using FabFilter plugins, everyone who does use them uh, just loves the crap out of them and thinks they're the best thing ever, uh, which is basically how I feel about them uh, in yeah. terms of like their CPU usage and all that. So Yeah, I love them. Um, I use them all the time. <laughs> were you, uh, let's, let's get into, let's see, we got about 15 minutes left of our scheduled time. Uh, and there are definitely a few more questions that I cannot let us go past without, uh, g uh, finish up without going uh, through. So, let me just ask: uh, Were you were you ever in a, a school AV club or run sound for like your a church youth group or something like that? Yeah, I so I guess funny story about that. I went to a very small middle school, and there was really nothing. Like there was no almost no music program at all. So I ended up getting involved outside of music. I basically went up to the owner of a restaurant that had live music five nights a week when I was 11 and asked him if I could follow around to sound engineer and learn <laughs> how it worked. Um, so that that's really how I learned it. And I, I started doing that when I was like 11, 12 and ended up working into a job there when I was, I think, 16. Wow. So... Pretty awesome. <laughs> it's not your typical. I'm pretty sure I was the only kid who was going to a restaurant at night to follow around sound engineer after school. So <laughs> <laughs> pretty, you're a pretty driven person. I take it then, huh? Uh, Where do you think you get that drive, uh, drive to uh, push forward for, I, I guess, for lack of a better word for success or for your own personal endeavors? I think my parents are like that. So I learned it from them. 
just kind of seeing them do similar things. And I, I definitely had a lot of support. I mean, my dad drove me to work <laughs> for what, like five years before I got my driver's license. Yeah. And yeah. would sit out there and do his work on his laptop and let me run sound. So I definitely had a lot of support from my parents. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. Was this around the time? So it sounds like around the time that you got hired for that job would have been around the time that you got your certificate in music business. Is that mm-hmm. roughly right? Yeah. So I, when I started looking at high schools, I, I wanted to be able, like I knew I wanted to get into music. So I wanted to be able to start at least like taking some classes in music um, and not just a lot of the high schools that I looked at, they had maybe like a music theory class or a choir class, but I'm a rocker at heart. And so I, (laughs) I wanted to learn audio engineering and production and all that. Um, And so I ended up doing an online school through the university of Nebraska for my core courses. And that allowed me to dual enroll at Berkeley um, so mm. I did that from the time I was 14 to 16. And that Sweet. was, that was wow. like my extra, I guess your non core classes. I don't really know what they're called, but. Extracurricular. I yeah. Guess, huh? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, and it sounds like it led to a pretty good career almost directly out of high school. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, let's see. Do you, uh, did you ever make a major change from like one, like DAW to another? Um, and how, how much of a transition was that for you? I'd say I've never really made a transition. I'd just say that as I've started working with more people, I've learned more DAWs. Um, Mm -hmm. so I, I, I end up using a lot of different ones, um, but part of that's also that I like to learn how different ones work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know that I've ever made like a transition specifically. I've just kind of, you know, I might have a session with one person and they like to use this DAW and then I work with another person and they like to use this other one. So I've, I've just tried my best to learn different ones so that depending on what session I'm in, I can, pick up and start working. So is that one thing that you try to consider is like what, um, if, if the person or client that you're working with, uh, is also someone who works from home as a home engineer or home recording Mm -hmm. artist that, uh, and they use some bit of software that, that you try to learn how to use that software so you can do the session in that software and easily send them something they can work with or. Yeah. And I, I'd say like if I'm producing someone with some, something with someone else, you know, for both using pro tools, it can be really easy for me to send them the whole session and then, then they can add some stuff and tweak my parts and then they can send it back to me and I can tweak their parts. And so it sometimes using the same dog makes it a little bit easier in that respect because they can see like what plugins I'm using and, and I can also learn from them. I feel like I've learned 
the most by watching other people. Right. And seeing their strategies yeah, for how they work. Yeah. And seeing what they use to solve certain problems. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. We're coming up on about 10 minutes left. I always like to end with two final questions. So before we get to those, uh, let's just make sure to talk a little bit more about uh, the Guitars for Gifts programs uh, that, that you ran uh, or started, really. Um, in 2011, I'm, hang on, quick math. You started that at what age? 11. Like 11. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, good. Wow. Good work on that. Uh, I'm not sure how you pulled that together. Hopefully your parents helped you a little bit on the filing yeah. for the 501c3. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, how did you, how did you get a passion for charity and, uh, and all that? Yeah. So I guess at first I didn't really see it as a passion, passion for charity. Um, growing up, my parents and my sister and I would always, well, my sister and I would always save up part of our allowance um, for a Christmas basket. Mm -hmm. And basically, as I got older, I noticed that a lot of teenagers didn't have gifts because it's mm -hmm. so hard to shop for teenagers. Yeah. And so music's something I've always had a lot of anxiety. And um, for me, songwriting and playing music has really been a therapy. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to give a couple guitars to that and Honestly, pretty much just through word of mouth, um, I started hearing from different music programs who needed instruments, and it's really hard for youth music programs to find, whether it be grants or donors who are going to provide funds specifically for musical instruments, um, and sometimes even with a lot of schools, they have limits on what they can fundraise for and different things like that. Um, yeah. And so I just, I think through that, I saw there was a need and it was something that I really wanted to help solve that need, um, find a solution for that. Yeah. Uh, especially since music's been something that's really been helpful in my life. Yeah. Well, that's super cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe uh, it shows a big heart uh, for an 11 year old to, to think of that and then like actually spend some of their time instead of like playing or, or doing their own thing uh, to actually yeah. you know, help other people. I think that's cool. Thank you. That's kind of funny because I, I remember I started that like the summer before eighth grade and when I went back to school, one of the teachers asked, they're like, what's something that happened to you this summer and I was like well I got really frustrated because the IRS has a really long form for starting nonprofits, <laughs> and I, I don't think that's what they thought that an 11 year old would be complaining that the IRS form to start a yeah. nonprofit is too long <laughs> yeah it is it is a beast though yeah. uh, I can attest to that <laughs> for sure um well cool um, before we wrap up, I, I do want to end with my final two questions. Uh, before we get to those, I'll ask, uh, were, were there any topics or anything that you wanted to talk about today that I, as a terrible host, have neglected to ask you about? No, you were great. Yeah, I, I don't think there's <laughs> anything else that comes to mind. Okay. Sweet. Uh, well, good to hear. Um, 
let's uh, let's move on to my my final two questions. And I, I bet for someone in your your job, uh, you, you might have maybe a uh, a horror story, or well, maybe not horror story. Maybe that's not the verbiage you would use when discussing a client, but like a, a a funny story of like someone bringing you some like completely unusable audio where they want you to make a vinyl record from it or something like that. Do you have any funny stories of like unrecoverable audio or nearly unrecoverable audio that you were somehow able to rescue or, or use for a client? Um, there are a couple of different stories that come to mind. I mean, there have definitely been some where I've gotten audio and it's one of the weird things about vinyl is it, it doesn't do well with, um, like if you have like a pop Mm -hmm. in the audio or, or some, like if there's going to be one really loud spot, um, it doesn't like that. Mm. Um, and so there, there have been some instances where I've had to go in and I guess more surgically remove certain things from the audio. Oh, like, like do a little automation where you had to like dip the volume yeah. basically for a second. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, there, I, I did have one. And one of the things I think is interesting is, um, some of the, just the, things that people associate with vinyl is more something that comes from tape. Mm. And so there was one time I had someone complain that a lacquer that I cut sounded too close to the digital file and they mm. wanted it to sound like it was on tape, but they didn't want me to actually like transfer it onto tape. And <laughs> but so that was definitely an interesting, I guess, thing that happened <laughs> they wanted it to sound grittier or dirtier yeah like, like, yeah like they actually i think they said i think there's one time someone said this sounds too good to be on vinyl and so if you can make it sound worse i was like okay <laughs> i i guess i can do that yeah <laughs> sure yeah no half of our jobs these days as, as producers is about like getting the cleanest recording possible so then mm-hmm. we can add a little distortion at the end and make it sound like it was recorded on crappy old equipment it's fun. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um well cool and uh my my last question is kind of the opposite of that so uh what, what's the the audio project that you've uh worked on where you were you were like pretty proud at the end like the, the proudest moment you had i think for me uh one thing was i did the lacquer cutting for a limited edition beck single and He's just so good that yeah. it, I mean, the audio that I got was obviously amazing. Mm-hmm. And then after I, I ended up buying a copy of that. Um, and just, and it, you know, I can't play back the lacquers. So even though I'd done some test cuts and heard those, I, my fingers are still crossed. I was like, please let this, sound yeah. good because this is not the person that I want to mess up. Right. Um, so, but then being able to hear the single and know that it sounded good. That was, that was pretty cool. Um, and some of the direct to discs that I've worked on, those have been cool 
because you hear the band play live and then you get to hear the record a couple days later. And sometimes how close those two things sound, it's Mm -hmm. really cool. Do you get much interaction with an artist like Beck when, when you're making his, like, does he, does Beck call you and be like, no. I don't like this? No, no. yeah. I, don't no. Think so. <laughs> I wish, but no. Yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, just figured I'd ask. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, and yeah, I sure appreciate your time. You've been very generous and I hope that, uh, that we get to stay in touch and maybe uh, after your, your release comes out, we could, mm-hmm. we could hook up again. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Anna. And uh, yeah, have a good rest of your day. You too.